Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. Um, and I just remember walking past the Pentagon and seeing the smoke and the smell. I'll never forget the smell. I think that's what a lot of people on 9-11, especially in New York and everything, um, smell and sen your senses are a powerful thing. And I don't think that I ever forgot what that smell was like. It was just so striking and different. I remember crossing by foot the bridge, walking all the way home. I remember my roommate sobbing when I knock on the door and she opens the door and there I am. And I just remember her grabbing me and hugging me and being like, you're okay. Um, and then we just sat. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you are watching us on YouTube, um, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by our faithful host, Pastor Josh Bertram. Um, and we are, we are joined by none other than Olivia Troy, who you might remember. She is the former White House Homeland Security, Counterterrorism, and COVID advisor to Vice President Pence, and is now the director at the Republican Accountability Project. So welcome back, Olivia. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're 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 super we're super glad that you're here. And I I was I was telling our other um our other guests. So so this is the the second in a two part series of just asking folks like what they remember about nine eleven. Um, the first person we had on was Olivier Knox um, from the Washington Post, and and I have you now, Olivia Troy. And if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have chosen two people that had almost identical names. <laughs> Because on a couple occasions I called Olivier Olivia, <laughs> and uh, and I, I'm sorry Olivier for that. Um, so I'll apologize to you in, in advance, just in case I inadvertently call you Olivier. So please don't don't be upset. <laughs> well, if it makes um, you feel any better, I did have a very very good friend in college whose name was Olivier. He was from France, and he was doing a one year <laughs> exchange at Penn with, me. and we lived in the same <laughs> hall. Same Whoa. floor, same building, hmm. um, and we became best friends. So we confused everyone. So, hmm. um, and when he did introduce himself, he did say, "Oh, my name's Olivier," and I was like, "No, it, it's a, I'm actually Olivia." And we had like a five minute conversation <laughs> back and forth, and I was like, "No, you say it, Olivia," and he said, "Olivier," and I was like, "Olivia." We had a little bit of argument, and then he was like, "My name is Olivia," and then he spelled it for me, and I was like, "Right, dense American, sorry, French guy." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it would have been at, at, at some point in time, I was considering um, asking both of you guys if you wanted to um, just team up to kind of talk about your experiences. And then I thought that is a horrible idea um, <laughs> because it's like if I was going to have Olivier and Olivia, we might as well record it like at the Olive Garden, Olive Garden. Olivia. Uh, anyway, that's a horrible dad joke, but um, <laughs> we're not here to talk about names. <laughs> so uh, we're here to talk about um, 9-11 and, you know, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, it's been a wild ride for a lot of us um, um, with uh, the, the first part of our series. We, we had asked Olivia kind of like where, where he where he was on 9-11 and he was actually covering George Bush at Sarasota at the education event, 
which we thought, if you remember the infamous yes, sitting when they walk in and talk to him, he was there. <laughs> and uh, and I and I and I'm curious on like where, where where were you on on 9/11? I was actually on Capitol Hill. Um, so yeah, so I was actually at the Republican National Committee headquarters because that's where I was working at the time. Uh, and I had just actually left. Um, I had walked over because I was a junior staffer there and I just walked over a package to the Capitol. So I was actually in the Capitol when it was all wow. sort of unfolding. Yeah. So, yeah. So as you can imagine, um, there was just a lot of confusion um, and chaos. I just remember being evacuated. Like I just remember everybody running and the hallways uh, because wow. we didn't know where that flight was going. Um, there's just so many confusing reports about what was happening, right? I mean, I don't think anybody knew at the moment um, what was actually developing. So I remember uh, running out of the building and the U.S. Capitol Police just like escorting and trying to point everyone in the right direction and trying to keep everyone somewhat calm, but saying move, like you've got to move now fast. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Amazing. So, I, so, so, so were you, were you, um, I, I guess, what was the general feeling that okay, planes are hitting, or 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 did you even know that planes were hitting at that time? And then was there a concern that the plane, a plane, was going to come hit the Capitol? So we knew um, we had just seen. I, I'm, I think we were aware that a plane had hit one of the towers at the time. And so, but that's you know, I think actually, I don't think I know that that has happened because I'm out and about. And so I think um, all I know is that we're being evacuated and everyone is confused, I think, because I don't think that there had been such a rush at the U.S. Capitol in that way, or at least not for many of us who had been, uh, you know, younger staffers. And so I think I realized that when I get back to my desk um, at work, because I go back to my desk, I actually run all the way back to our building um, and because I don't know what else to do. Right. And I'm just like, well, I'm just going to go back to like figure out what's happening and talk to the team and or someone and be around people that are familiar and let them know that everybody's running out of the Capitol. Little, you know, unknown to me that they were watching the TV um, or the reports, the breaking headlines on what was happening. And so I walk in and I see everyone just gathered around the TV and I'm completely confused. And I remember looking up and then, um, and then we knew that the Pentagon shortly right after the Pentagon um, gets hit and everybody. And so at that point they, everyone's running from our building because we're really, you know, the campaign committees are actually right on Capitol Hill as well. Uh, especially the RNC, they're right next door to one of the house house buildings. Uh, so I just remember uh, everyone being gone. I remember my direct boss at the time, he was in Alaska. And I remember him, I guess when he gets woken up, I remember him trying to reach me, calling my desk and saying, I, do you know what's going on? I'm, we're in shock out here. Uh, and so I said, no, I, I know what you know. And um, yeah. And I remember, you know, the one thing I so vividly remember is uh, our cell phones, no one's cell phone worked. All the signals were jammed. Um, and I just remember for those of us that did have cell phones, like nothing, um, nothing was getting through. And so my parents were down in Texas. Um, my dad was still alive at the time. Um, which we can talk about. That's, you know, 9-11 is always kind of a weird time for me because it's not only the emotion of 9-11, but I also end up losing my dad two months after it. 
um, oh my word, the same year. So I, you know, this will be the 20th anniversary of, of his death. And so it's just a lot to process around that time. Um, but I remember a note, my parents couldn't get a hold of me. My roommate couldn't get a hold of me. And she knew that I was around the Capitol. So she's also confused, right? Cause there's all these conflicting reports. So she's freaking out cause she's worried about me. And I just remember walking to a friend's house, trying to use her landline phone to call my mom. And then walking home from that area, can you believe this, all the way out to Arlington, Virginia, to Boston, past the Pentagon, because I couldn't get a cab. I didn't want to get on the metro because I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. Um, And I just remember walking past the Pentagon and seeing the smoke and the smell. I'll never forget the smell. I think that's what a lot of people on 9-11, especially in New York and everything, um, smell and your senses are a powerful thing. And I don't think that I ever forgot what that smell was like. It was just so striking and different. I remember crossing by foot the bridge, walking all the way home. I remember my roommate sobbing when I knock on the door and she opens the door and there I am. And I just remember her grabbing me and hugging me and being like, you're okay. Um, And then we just sat. You know, I think I got... Honestly, I think I got PTSD from watching the videos on the news over and over and over. I realized that I needed to stop watching it because I was watching the people in the buildings. I was watching them run in New York City. And I I started getting nightmares because I was so taken in by it that I had watched it so much day and night for several days afterwards um, that I I think I traumatized myself. You know, something about those images where I really took it in. You know, randomly, the human aspect, I also remember being the only one at the Ford dealership the day after, because my dad, being a practical Texan and truck driver, says, uh, you don't have a car. And I know you're trying to be, he, he said this, believe it or not. He says to me, you're trying to be a hippie and save the environment. <laughs> he also used to make fun of me, like, what Republican is a hippie trying to save the, the environment? He's that's like, that's funny. a contradiction at the time. But here I was. <laughs> Um, and so he says, I want you to go get a car so that you can get out of there if you need to immediately. And I remember being at the Ford dealer and I I think everybody was very confused because nobody was buying a car on September 12th. And there I am, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 something year old walking (laughs) in and And they're just looking at me. And I was like, my father said that I have to get a car now and (laughs) I can't afford much. So I'll take the smallest, cheapest, lowest end model you can. Because I'm a hill sapper and I'm not making a lot of money right now. So I got to figure this out. Um, and, you know, we came from very humble means. So it's just things that you remember like that, right? And just thinking yeah. um, how that impacts you. And I do remember thinking, you know, as much as I love politics and campaigning, I've like, I want to be part of whatever the response is to this, so that this never happens again, or that I'm working to prevent it from happening again, which is how I end up sort of kicking off my career in national security, which I think a lot of people um, who really kind of experienced that sort of ended up making that career decision as well, or certainly a lot of my colleagues did. So what was that like moving out from the job that you had there moving into national security? Like, how did that from what you understand with maybe the people that have been in it before you, like how did that change how, like what the national security um, ecosystem or, you know, community, how, how did that change the community? 
No, I think that's um, a great question because I think what um, what was definitely striking to me is that when, uh, so I end up taking, I was an early political appointee, but I really made, went out of my way to say, I want to go work at the Pentagon. Um, I, that's because that, that image was so striking and, you know, just ingrained in my head that I was like, I want to, I'm not a military officer. Um, I actually thought about joining the military at the time. Um, but then my father passes and then I realized like, I'm an only child. So my mom, all I had, all she had was me. And I was like, I can't do that to her right now. That would be just too much. You know, fast forward to 2003 and what do I do? I deploy. And she also did not enjoy that phone call but as a civilian, but you know, it was a little, little bit of time passed. Um, but I think just um, what really was striking to me is that seeing a lot of uh, colleagues and uh, military officers and reservists um, that I was coming across who were from different different careers who had made significant changes. I remember one person in particular, um, he had been an investment banker um, working on Wall Street. And I just remember that he was like, he had signed up for the reserves and he was now working in the Pentagon um, and he wow. wanted to work in policy and intel, right? And he gave it all up. And look, you don't, uh, it's no secret, you don't really match the salary of investment banking when you're working in public <laughs> service. Um, it's just it's a very big it's a very big change, but I do remember a lot of individuals like that who came from very diverse backgrounds uh, who really said, um, I just felt a calling and I just was so committed um, and I just want to do whatever I can, um, apply whatever skill set I have and learn and really commit to a life of uh, public service at this time and figure out how we get better at this. And in terms of the, you know, the intelligence apparatus, it was it was hard. I, you know, I think I started in the Pentagon earlier on, so it was more on the policy side of the house. But I think everyone had this feeling of we failed, um, and that was just very hard. Um, and I think that takes years of the community. I mean, of course, you have the nine eleven commission and everything to identify where the gaps were, what happened, and I think we we learned a lot from it, and we grew significantly as a national security community in terms of agencies talking to each other and, you know, breaking down a lot of the silos that existed beforehand. Um, it was just more of a sort of figuring out where, you know, where the gaps were and how the community kind of would come together. I think we've come a long way. I do think so today in terms of counterterrorism and, you know, the lessons learned um, from that 20 years later. You know, what's, what's so weird about your, your, um, your story is that I remember, so in 9-11, I was like a senior in college. I was still working on a, um, a degree in psychology and music. Don't ask me why the two don't really blend, but, um, but, but, um, after the attacks, um, that December and, and Nash, I should preface this when I was in college, I was a hippie. So like, you know, even though you, You're you, still were, a hippie. you were, even though you were trying to, you were faking it, you know, I was like, I was a raging <laughs> liberal, you know, I mean, I had a big Afro, I would wear like tie dye shirts. I mean, if you could only imagine like, you if didn't I do was any just, drugs though, right? That's a different podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but like in December, December, I, I remember going to the recruiting station and talking to the recruiter and saying, I want to be a part of the solution. I want to, I want to do something. I just felt moved, you know? And, and, um, so I went and 
enlisted. And I was I was at the recruiter like a month later. I was at the map station, raising my hand. Um, and I remember at the recruiting station, the the recruiter's like, "Okay, so what do you want to do?" Like he sees this big hippie, right? You know, and and I did pretty well on my ASVAB score. And he's like, "Oh, so what do you want to do? Be like a linguist? You want to be an officer? Blah 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 blah. You know, you want to go to Germany?" Um, I was like, "No, I want to be in the infantry." And um, he's like, "What?" Like you know, what with, with your ASVAB score, people don't go in the infantry, you know, <laughs> like, like, uh, they just don't. And I was like, I don't know. I just wanted, I, that's just what I want to do. So I did it. I signed up as an 11 Bravo, um, went to Fort Benning, uh, in February, finished basic training, got assigned to, um, second ID at Fort Lewis, Washington. And in 2003, I was deployed, um, to Iraq. Um, I think you and I were probably there at the same time. Like I, I landed our first, our first FOB was in Balad, which is just down the street from Baghdad, mm-hmm. I think was where you were at. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and the, and the fob was like no bigger than, I don't know, probably no bigger than like my house. <laughs> so it was tiny. a small little yeah. fob. It was tiny. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I, and I just think to myself, like, that's the story of a lot of Americans. Like you talk about having kind of PTSD of just seeing those images. And I just think that like, like all of those that are old enough to remember those images, like this, this is like a real sensitive, yeah, impactful time that has like you ask anybody what their nine 11 story is and they'll, and they'll tell you the day, time, place, what they were wearing, you know, <laughs> like, and, and it's just like, it's, it's something else. And I, and I, and I'm wondering like, how much of that did you, you know, carry with you kind of throughout your career as, you know, working in like the national security space? Like, was that sort of like your nexus event, the thing that you just used to motivate yourself to say, this is not going to happen again? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it was just sort of me uh, just being very mission driven. And so I think that every assignment I took um, was very focused on that. And, uh, you know, after the Pentagon, I actually go, uh, I end up working at the national counterterrorism center for several years. Um, and I actually did work on Al Qaeda planning, operational planning to counter Al Qaeda. And so I spent about three and a half years, uh, really focused on that. Um, and also working for their director at the national counter center terrorism center, um, for quite some time who I learned who is, remains a mentor to me now, um, and who I learned a lot from um, at the time. And I think that really molded my career from there. And, you know, I, I really was very fortunate that I got to see a lot of things as a junior staffer at a very senior level. I just happened to um, really get lucky to serve on, you know, <laughs> as a junior person in very senior level offices. So I did get to work in the policy shop at the Pentagon, which is obviously one of the most powerful interesting places to be um, where a lot of these decisions are made. And so I was uh, working in the Pentagon when Afghanistan sort of starts up. I was there for the beginning of detention operations and I um, was there for Iraq. And uh, that's how I ended up in uh, Iraq and Baghdad with uh, Paul Bremer. And I was his, um, I was actually his junior staffer, the gatekeeper, I guess is what they would call me. So I sat out right outside his door. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The gatekeeper. Yeah. That's a good nickname. You start somewhere, right? And that was, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate that I, that was the assignment I ended up in. But yes, definitely the gatekeeper. Um, I always tell people, be kind to the junior staff because they can make or break you. (laughs) They're the ones who get you. Like I've always like, 
thought like, hey, you're never going to get to the person, but you can get to the person that knows the person or maybe the person <laughs> who knows the person who knows the person, you know, that's awesome. You know, I, I so when I imagine counterterrorism, I imagine like 24, you know, and I imagine <laughs> I like you have <laughs> like you have access to, you know, real time data like the terrorist is on 32nd street and you're like there and you're like waterboarding. No, wait, you don't do that. And you're like trying to get, uh, <laughs> that wasn't my <laughs> you didn't officially do that. Uh, yeah, we won't, we won't say anything. So, um, you're trying to get the information out of them or whatever. And, and, uh, um, so, or, or like the mythology we talked about in another podcast, the previous one with Olivier, um, like the mythology of the white house, the overall office where like, uh, you know, someone's calling president. We have this situation right now. You need to make a decision. What are the nuclear codes, you know, and they're trying to figure everything out. So think about that. Like if we look at this mythology or the Hollywood version, um, what was that like compared to like what life was really like in counterterrorism and even like what is counterterrorism and why, like, why should we as Americans want to have counterterrorism even as a part of what we do as a country. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, it's like I um, I'll say... It's somewhat like that, what you see on 24. <laughs> I don't know if it's as glamorous as it looks um, or as high speed, but it, there's certainly some similarities. I can tell you, I remember when the cast of 24 came to uh, NCTC, to the National Counterterrorism Center, um, nice. because they modeled it after it. So to the to a certain extent, it's fairly accurate on how it looked. We did have all the TV screens and the operation center. Um, and I remember when that happened and I... Um, I forget the one name of the actress because some, I remember one of them came up and they were like, oh, if you're in that role, you must be, and I forget the name of the woman, but it's a lead actor in it. And I was like, yeah, I guess that is my role. Yeah, it's not as cool <laughs> as that looks on TV, but yeah, I guess that would be me if I were actually doing those things in real time. Um, That's awesome. but, um, for the most part, I mean, it does, you know, it, there is a lot of communication like that when there is a threat stream that you know is credible um, and that the community is tracking. And it really is a coordinated sort of mechanism um, where it's all of the agencies coming together immediately. Um, and it's, you know, who's going to take action? Whose jurisdiction does it fall under? Is it, you know, especially if it's domestic, because we're always looking at overseas threats, but also looking at the ties there to prevent an attack domestically here. Right. And so, um, and we're also protecting our embassies and military bases. We're all, you know, U.S. assets overseas. That's all part of the equation. And I think, you know, yes, those uh, those meetings, you know, the we kind of civitas, 
go secure video teleconferences where you see the president on the screen. That is real. All of that happens, you know, and they happen at a moment's notice. Sometimes I remember, you know, sometimes speeding, don't tell the police down the parkway when I (laughs) would get noticed that something was happening and I had to get in and prep and be ready for the boss to walk in ahead of time. And so I had that role and I, it's completely stressful because you know that every minute matters um, right now when that threat, because you're really, it's, you're, it's sort of, racing against the bad guys and trying to prevent this. Um, And I think, you know, the community uh, in terms of counterterrorism really comes together on that when it comes to foreign and global terrorist groups. Now, domestic terrorism is a separate topic, which we can talk about if you want, but um, that is a very different sort of mechanism. But I think in terms of counterterrorism, why it matters, because these are real threats um, and these are global networks that are out there that actually are transnational at times in many ways, or can be regional overseas. Um, but at the bottom, uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, the bottom line is that um, they, our job is to protect the security of Americans and their safety, right? And I think it matters um, for Americans to really kind of understand that, you know, even though you know we've had a presence overseas, I know, and you know, we've just pulled out of Afghanistan. Regional stability around the world does matter. And what you don't want is to create, you know, opportunities for, you know, countries to become sort of the safe havens for these types of groups um, where they train and they operate there and they recruit. But a lot of that, to be honest, is also done now um, thanks to the power of technology and social media. So we have people being radicalized online. Uh, So it's really sort of, I would say that the threats that we had in the past, um, they're still there, but I guess the way the threat has evolved has been significant. And so technology can be used for good and it can be good used for bad, right? We have technology now and I'm talking to you all and we're in two different places. (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, the bad actors use the technology as well. You know, that's really interesting. And I'll... uh... I'll apologize in advance. My my dog is barking in the background. I think he was trying to communicate with your dog. I um, think so too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but uh, but but I, I, I do what I do want to uh, sort of focus in on the on the domestic terrorism part because I find it interesting. Wow. You know, when you read the um, 9-11 commission report and all the different books and wow. articles that are written about it, it seemed as if there was a certain I don't know, like ubiquitous level of unpreparedness, like for the attack on our soil. And there were sort of like whispers about Al Qaeda and there were, you know, these other, you know, maybe entities that knew something, but there wasn't like a cohesive, you know, thing to kind of put it all together, so to speak. And, and I, and I'm curious if there's any, I mean, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to say that we've really come a long way, especially in you know the midst of what happened on January sixth at the Capitol. It's like, how did we miss that? You know, you know, like it's clearly obviously obviously wasn't to the same extent that nine eleven was, but it seemed like it was a pretty big, you know, miss from the intelligence community, from the t- counterterrorism entities and and whatnot. So, like, can can you? Can you either, you know, talk about that? Like, am I wrong to compare the two? Are they two completely different animals? Um, and, you know, what, what do you think about that with regards to domestic terrorism, comparing the, the, the two events? In some ways, they are. 
um, two different sort of, I guess, mechanisms on how we counter um, global terrorism, counterterrorism versus domestic terrorism. And I will say that I actually was kind of surprised. I found that it was very eye-opening to be sitting in the White House working on homeland security on some of these threats. Um, having been a global counterterrorism practitioner for a really long time until I went to DHS and really focused more on the homeland, that is when I started to really notice the disparity um, between, you know, now we have the National Counterterrorism Center. They work very closely with the FBI and the CIA. I mean, there is sort of a combined, unifying, cohesive approach to this that really is a collaboration, um, so to speak, where all of these threats kind of come into one. There's a lot of, I think the community is is well-versed in sort of following those threat streams. Um, I will say when it comes to domestic threats, it's a lot harder. And um, so on January 6th, if we look at it from that perspective, I don't think that it was an intelligence failure, to be honest. Actually, I mean, it just wasn't. All of the intelligence was there. Like I was outside of the community and I was tracking threats online and I was seeing it myself and I had mapped it out and I was taking steps to protect my own family. Um, and I had been very vocal. Uh, I remember about uh, two weeks before I had been very vocal publicly. I'd been on media, believe it or not, I got the threats for being vocal. Um, you know, I got the, we're not violent. We're not going to be violent. Um, but you know, and those are always the best messages. I'm not violent, but when I see you and find you, I'm going to kill you. And I'm like, okay. You're not violent though. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to close the blinds and the shutters now. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, and so I think that all of the signs were there. I think it was a failure to act upon the intelligence, um, which is something that I think we really need to work on um, in terms of how we will proceed with domestic threats. And it's hard. You know, there are a lot of keyboard warriors out there, as we call them, where, um, you know, what is an actual threat? When does it actually become um, something that they follow up on? And I think that that is something that DHS, the Department of Homeland Security and FBI are going to continue to struggle with going forward. I think um, we're not quite there yet in terms of domestic threats like we are in terms of overseas threats. That's just a reality of it. I think we see them and I think we're going to really get a tracking some of them but we're very siloed. There's no NCTC per se for domestic, right? And so I think that I think is something that needs to be looked upon. And like, we've also, I think it's gonna be harder. I think we've got a lot of first amendment rights and we've got freedom of speech and we've got a lot of challenges that I think the community will face in terms of how we will look at social media uh, and doing social media checks domestically. And what does that mean? And how do you follow up on that? And without getting pushback from publicly, um, from the public. And so I think these are all conversations that are important that will need to be had. I actually really strongly believe um, in the January 6th select committee. I wanted it to be a commission, but unfortunately that's what it is. But I do think that we learned a lot from the 9-11 commission and I'm hopeful that the January 6th select committee will have recommendations that will help us in terms of the Homeland Security enterprise. Um, I think that will be incredibly helpful. You know, politics aside, um, whatever happens that led to January 6th, I think it'll be important to really learn from that day in terms of what happened between law enforcement and intelligence agencies and really find sort of the gaps so that we know 
what we have a better understanding um, because I think that's after 9-11, that's really what we did. We became a community that really kind of figured out where did we fail. And I think that's an important thing uh, that I think the committee can probably do. Hmm. You know, I, <clears throat> I was thinking about this committee that's um, may, being made for the January 6th event and, um, and even thinking about the commission that came out of 9-11 and the events that happened there, the difference between domestic and global terrorism. You know, I, I can imagine that dealing with domestic terrorism, one of the, ma- one of the major differences is you're dealing with citizens. Um, or if you are de- dealing with U.S. citizens, that creates um, a greater degree of care. Um, you have to honor the Constitution. Um, and I, I don't know um, how, much, how many constitutional rights are given to global terrorists, if any. Um, but I know that as American citizens, you're supposed to be able to have the, you know, the Constitution behind you. Um, you know, and, and you can speak to that uh, however you want to. But I guess my question is that, how is it that, like, what the tension, um, help, the, help us understand the tension that's inherent between, you know, um, like, say, for example, the Patriot Act or, or the Department of Homeland Security that was created um, and America now, the intelligence community necessarily maybe spying on its own citizens, things like that. What kind of tensions has that created between the Constitution the civil liberties of Americans and, and balancing the safety um, and, and the charge of, you know, the, of the government to maintain peace and tranquility, both domestic and foreign. Where, where do you see that tension rising and, 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 and how do we, in your mind, solve it? Yeah, I think that, um, I think their attention is significant. And I think, honestly, I think it is a significant obstacle to countering um, what we're seeing on the rise of domestic terrorism of extremists here. Uh, and I think I'm very concerned about, uh, you know, I, we're a very divided country right now um, and with a lot of grievances. Um, there's a lot of hate, unfortunately. And I think it's only getting worse. And unfortunately, and I think that that drives a greater possibility for violence. Uh, you know, we're, and I, I come at this from the perspective that I, I can't tell you how many numerous mass shootings I worked on during my tenure um, as a Homeland Security Advisor uh, on the aftermath. It was awful. I remember every single one of them. And I remember um, some of them specifically that were tied to um, white supremacist manifestos or that sort of um, hatefulness, right? And I worked on synagogue shootings, the aftermath of the Tree of Life synagogue. And what happened there, and I'm, you know, even in a mass shooting in my own hometown of El Paso, um, where that was certainly um, some of the undertones. And I think that um, the tension, I think, is going to remain significant in terms of privacy rights and how do we maintain that. And I think it's going to have to, it'll be a tough conversation, but I think it's going to come down to the U.S. government, in some ways, I would say, building trust as well with um, with the public and um, making sure that we have boundaries on how we will approach this and boundaries on protecting the privacy of Americans, because obviously that's critical. Um, we have, we are the United States and we have our U.S. Constitution. 
But I think, you know, other countries, honestly, are light years ahead of us in terms of countering their own domestic threats because they don't have a lot of the challenges that we will face in terms of this topic. And um, it is hard. And I will tell you, you know, a lot of the time there are, there is a lot of chatter in social media and we'll come to find out after an attack that that person posted on social media. And so the question is, how do we counter things like that when the warnings are there? And how do you flag that? And I'm not saying that that work necessarily isn't happening, but it's going to become, I think, a more prominent conversation. But the counter to that, to be candid, is how do you do that in a world right now where people are increasingly becoming anti-government? And there's a lot of doubt. And I think that is what worries me, because when you start to lose the public trust in your government institutions, um, I think that is that leads us down a really dark path in terms of our democracy. And so I'm very concerned about I hope I've hoped that many people, maybe leaders that are sort of leading us down that path, um, start to have a moment of realization that what's happening here is not, you know, it's not just political rhetoric. You're actually eroding at the fibers of our democracy here. Um, And we need to be able to have these honest conversations about what's happening here. So I don't know Uh, if that really answered your question. It's a complicated topic. It is. Yeah. And um, I I want to quiz you real fast because I just learned something about the Patriot Act, the USA Patriot Act. Like, I did not know that was an acronym. (laughs) and 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 i'm curious if you know what that acronym stands for i wrote it down just 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 so i I made sure i got it right uh uh do 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 you know off the top of your head or remember (laughs) probably not i've actually haven't worked on the patriot act in quite a few years now actually to be honest with you so so for our listeners uh it is the uniting and strengthening america the usa part by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. So that is the USA Patriot Act, which I am very impressed by their ability to That's form words. Yeah. <laughs> <form a> word. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that is like, like whoever, whatever staffer developed that. <laughs> They should get a raise. Or should they, have a raise. Yeah, they need to be a speechwriter. They probably are. I don't know, but um, but the, the the last question I want to ask you about nine eleven is, so today, um, I think it was today or yesterday, um, the mastermind of the nine eleven attack, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, you know, who was captured in two thousand three in Pakistan, you know, is still or or presently about to go to trial. I mean, it's like, you know, 17 years or so. Um, and and I'm I, I'm curious, like, like what, why would the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, you know, like have 17 years basically to, to, I don't know, think about what he's done and is it, and, and, and wait for trial. I mean, it like, I, I'm not, I don't understand the legal system enough to know how all that kind of like plays in. And I'm curious if you can maybe help explain it. Yeah, I mean, those trials are have been very cumbersome and have it, it's been a long system. <laughs> and so I, um, there's pros and cons to it. I think there's a lot of personal opinions on whether that system was broken or not or fair. 
Um, and I think there's probably good arguments on both aspects of it, to be honest with you. Um, you know, and I think someone like him, um, the issue with him is that although he's probably not in the mix, obviously, because he's been off the grid and off the radar for so long that, you know, the sources and the connections and network is probably, you know, those are gone. We're not, we're not looking at them for that. Um, and that's gone. But I think the problem with him on someone like him is that there is a whole population out there that where he still remains an inspiring figure, probably. Uh, and I think that that is where, um, you know, you need to, I, I think that's where the rub is, I guess I would say, is that um, here is someone who is a symbol um, to those who may subscribe to that thinking. Um, and the question is, I think the world will be watching. There's a certain population out there will be paying close attention um, to what happens um, with is this individual. And, you know, these are all, um, there's no easy answer um, on a lot of these things. Certainly I'm aware of detention operations and there was a lot of concern at the time um, and rightly so of what happens when you return these people, these people return to the countries, will they engage in the fight? Some of them do, some of them don't. Are they rehabilitated? Some of them are, some of them aren't. So those are all fair questions. I think the thing for someone like him is he was such a big figure in this massive terrorist attack that succeeded that I think when you look at him, is it someone who is still viewed as this sort of martyr and idol? Because that's kind of the tendency for many of these groups. Um, But, you know, if you shift over to Afghanistan, you're watching Haqqani being you know, joining, being part of the official, I guess, Taliban government and getting appointed. Haqqani is a terrible guy. He is a very dangerous individual um, who is not just a terrorist, but he's just corrupt. I mean, he's just a criminal. And so, um, you know, all of these people play a role in terms of recruitment and the people that look up to him. So um, I think that'll be sort of an interesting trial to kind of see but you know i think you know he's also getting hopefully a fair what i think is a fair fair trial um whether it's been a long process or not um and hopefully has been treated humanely like i can only speak to you know i had the actual i had the international committee for the red cross portfolio so i was a big advocate for humane treatment i think we are um we, we, you know, aspire to set a certain standard that many do not get that around the world. Um, and I hope I was one of the advocates that advocated to have Korans <laughs> there because it was the right thing to do. And I, I know you guys come from a place of faith. So I just wanted yeah, to, yeah. Yeah, that's why I mentioned yeah. that because it's, and, faith, and, you and, know, and to that I remember, um, um, Neil, Neil Gorsuch actually ruled on a, on a detainee issue once because uh, he needed a food, like food requirements and one of his jail um, in one of the prisons he was, he was in, I can't remember the name of the person, but I I remember reading, reading about some of the rulings of Neil Gorsuch before he was a Supreme court justice. And, and um, you know, he heavily ruled in favor of religious freedoms and, and rights. And this uh, Muslim person that needed a special diet, like, got it because of Gorsuch ruling. So I think that's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm to- to- totally with you, but, but to, we, we do have a couple other questions about Afghanistan, but I, I, I do want to at least just ask you just one thing about like the withdrawal and what does that mean for things like 
um, you know, DOD spending, you know, or like the future of like the NDAAs or, you know, other sort of like organizations like, you know, DHS was formed after after 9-11. So as a result, we all had to take off our shoes and take our laptops out of our bags and stuff like that. Like, so, you know, do do you see do you see the withdrawal having any effect on any, any of the things I just mentioned? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, we've certainly spent enough money there. I, I think I actually had lost track of how much money we had spent there until recently. I found that kind of shocking. Um, I mean, I knew it was a lot, but to see the numbers, um, both in cost of dollars and in also cost of life um, is not lost on me at all. And, you know, I think um, one thing I will say is, you know, you can judge the withdrawal um, you know, I know there are a lot of strong opinions on that, on whether it was how it was conducted and what happened, um, whether we, you know, failed to see things or expect things. Um, but in terms of the national security community and what this withdrawal means, um, I think regionally it could definitely lead to instability and we're seeing that kind of play out a little bit. But um, the community actually, when it comes to the threat of what's happening there, I think has come a long way. And so I'll just speak to that and say, in terms of the intelligence community and those threats, I don't think that we're, we're not going to regress back to where we were pre 9-11 because that community and mechanism that was built after DHS and the National Counterterrorism Center and a lot of the fixes that were there remain in place and will remain in place. And we've gotten so much better at screening and vetting, you know, and when you talk about, you know, the precautions that we've taken with the, uh, with TSA and DHS, I don't think anything really changes on that. I think the threat streams will remain and uh, the community will continue to function the way it always has. Um, I do think that we're more resilient when it comes to really understanding foreign um, foreign travel to the United States. Foreign traveling, we, we have a pretty good idea of who's coming in and out. We do great screening and vetting. Knock on wood. I don't, you know, we, um, I won't say, you know, it's a hundred percent foolproof, but um, it's pretty solid. It's way light years ahead of pre-9-11. So I think in that respect, uh, you know, we're safer. We're safer than we were um, back then. Now, in terms of, I don't see it really impacting any changes in terms of the way people travel now. Um, I, I'm actually more concerned about people traveling domestically right now, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, case in point, we saw a lot of people travel to the Capitol on January yeah. 6th. Unfortunately, I'm from Texas, and I know for a fact that many came from Texas, <laughs> unfortunately, right? And so that's, um, you know, when you when you look at things like that, um, I think that's where I think I worry domestically um, in terms of that, and I worry about cyber as well. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I worry about, like, critical infrastructure. So I think, you know, where we are in terms of countering threats, I don't think that we we look away from the war on terrorism, I guess, uh, you know, um, or countering terrorism or counterterrorism as it is globally. But I do think that there's a certain extent where we do really have to look internally ourselves and kind of, um, as we discussed, sort of look at that community from that perspective. Um, and I, you know, I think watching what's happening in Afghanistan for me is heartbreaking in terms of we spent so many years there and what's happening. Um, I worry about the women in Afghanistan. I worry about the children. Yeah. 
and their future. Um, I think it's even harder for them that they've had of had sort of a taste of some freedom, right. And experiencing, um, what that was like in partnership with the U S forces. Um, but I think that watching what is happening, you know, time will tell, um, what the Taliban will do, you know, they're making certain promises and assurances, but actions speak louder than words. And they're certainly not known for being trustworthy and following through on it. So, um, I think that'll be sort of yet to be seen. I do hope that we get our Afghan allies out. Um, I think they served right on the ground next to us. I really think about that a lot. I think that's been hard for a lot of people who have deployed or been on the ground. And we think about those interpreters and translators and the families that really, you know, in my eyes were no different than, than myself or people serving on the ground because they really were the lifelines for many of us. And we couldn't have done our jobs without them. And so, you know, I think about them a lot and I think about welcoming them into communities around the world and what they'll face in a world that's so divided, especially here in the United States. And I hope that, I think one worry that I have is that I hope that we show compassion and welcoming and love to these families and these refugees that are coming here. Um, because the uh, I am concerned that I do not want to them to feel ostracized yeah. in any way because they've spent, you know, they've spent a lot of time in their lives protecting ours and defending America. And we should never forget that. You know, I, um, <clears throat> I agree with you. I think that what one thing that makes America so beautiful is in all of our faults is that, um, we have been truly a nation that's, um, overall tried to welcome or like welcome refugees, things like that. Of course, we haven't done it perfectly. And there's been many, many faults that we've had over the years. Um, but we are a, a, a truly multinational nation. And one of the things that I've just been struck in this conversation, especially with this idea of um, the mastermind behind 9-11 uh, sitting in an American jail cell or whatever is going on for 17 years awaiting trial um, versus, say, um, someone like uh, Soleimani, am I saying his name right, where we take a drone and we blow them up in a car, you know, in a, uh, you know, one of our drones, uh, I guess, the, it, it, what is it, the hunter? I don't remember what it's called, but it brings those <laughs> blades out or whatever. Um, that's a pretty crazy way to go, right? You know, just being basically thrown into a giant fan um, and uh, that's attached to a missile. So, you know, when thinking about like contrasting those two things, 17 years, getting a fair trial versus we're just taking this guy out. Um I guess when I'm thinking about this scenario, and, and I'm going to ask you a question that is an impossible question to answer, probably, but I like asking those questions because so, <laughs> I love hearing the responses. So, so we're looking at these two different things and say maybe someone gets, you know, who's to say maybe that um, a Taliban, right, they're operating in America or they, or they have some people that they've brought in and and they snuck into uh, being taken as a and as a refugee, and then they come in and they uh, do a you know an act of terror, violence, and then they get to they don't get shot somehow, and 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 they get to go and, and face the trial where there's other people on foreign soil either being taken out by an American operation or whatever. 
So with this withdrawal, thinking about this contrast and with this withdrawal, my question is, do you think that the world is a better place with America leaving Afghanistan? That is a very hard question. Because um, I can think I could, I'm the type of person that can kind of make arguments for both perspectives, I guess, in some sure. ways. But um, I think many of us can. Uh, you know, I, I think that, um, and I people may get upset when I say this, but uh, I don't think that we do nation building all that well. Maybe that's mm. the understatement of the year. Um, <laughs> it's not controversial because it's one that I have, I, I hold to. So, so you're, I mean, you're very, a good company. Trying to be diplomatic here in some ways, but I think that, uh, you know, democracy is really hard. I mean, look yeah. at what's happening here in the U.S. Uh, we really got to, it's fragile too. So I feel like you really got to care for it and you really got to, got to, you know, protect it. Um, and I think sort of trying to encourage democracy, which I think is great. And I think that it's wonderful to be, um, to think of that in a very ideal way. And so we want freedom and we want, you want, we want, we want to promote freedom around the world. There's a noble thing about that, right? There is. And I want that. I want that for those women in Afghanistan. And I want that for women everywhere and children everywhere. And I want them to see a different future. And, um, but the counter to that is some places just aren't built that way. And it's a different culture and it's not the American mindset. And it's a very different viewpoint and walk of life. And the two are not necessarily complementary to each other, right? And so um, I don't know. I think the region and that part of the world is probably not a better place now that we're gone. I think it's going to be harder um, regionally. But I think that after 20 years, we've certainly, we've certainly done a lot to try to make it a better place. And um, I mean, at some point, like how long are you going to stay? Um, and that's a very hard question to answer, right? And when do you draw the line on it? And I think 20 years is a really long time. Um, and I think that's where, you know, whatever happened along the way and um, the deals that were cut and made uh, you know, I, I feel for those Afghan forces, honestly, um, and I hope that we didn't sort of betray them by meeting with the Taliban, because honestly, I think that was that was a pretty big slap in the face, I think, um, in terms of undermining them and the Afghan government in some ways, because they've been there. And then you suddenly go and meet with the people that they have been fighting all along. And you're their biggest partner. I don't know what I don't know the kind of message that you're sending to them. But you're referring to Trump's agreement, uh, the Trump and Pence's agreement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I was trying not to get too political about it, but I, I think oh, sorry. That that yeah, is hard. I just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I just yeah, I think that was uh, that was right. not the wisest decision to do because you demoralize them. Um, I think you know, as someone who's spent time there and seen it, like. What are you saying to those Afghan forces that are with the military on the ground when you go and meet with a group? You sort of legitimize them again, right? And so I feel like you just take, um, you pull the rug out from under them. Uh, and so 
you know, history will look back and be like, yeah, that was a good idea. That was a bad idea. I think it's um, really way too fresh and um, to really kind of um, make a true assessment of that, to be honest. Um, and I think there's very strong opinions. Obviously, people have very personal, strong feelings about this. And um, one thing I will say that um, worries me is just I, I think, you know, I think we made a big difference while we could, while we were there. Um, you know, I, uh, and I have no doubt that our military and the people that served there did, um, make a huge contribution. And I would never take that away from any military person or person that served there, because I think there were a lot of sacrifices made. Hmm. And I worry you know about that narrative turning on the military on that, because I think there's a lot of veterans and a lot of military people out there that sort of are questioning that right now um people that i know personally too and i think we can't forget to keep that perspective yeah we we had a we had a green brand on the show a couple of weeks ago um he's actually a really good friend of mine um who trained a lot of the elite afghan forces and and it's interesting to hear him talk about it because like he he took on some of the responsibility of what he was seeing on the news. He just thought, well, maybe if I trained them harder, maybe if we just stayed longer, you know, and I, and I remember telling him like, it's not your fault. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I know him as a friend, I know his family. And I said, I know that you did everything you possibly could. And, um, it's hard to watch, but you know, we just have to, you know, <laughs> we just have to put America first. He, he voted for Trump too. And, um, you know, and I said, like, this is, this is what, what Trump would have wanted. Um, and, and, uh, like, I, I, I so hate Biden to Biden wanted it. too, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's what he's Biden been wanting too, this right? for a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's no, right. no secret so, that he really has wanted out of this, um, mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. It's just, just Biden just had the political will to, to do it. And if it cost him in 2024, then so be it, you know? But if, if it cost him in 2024 and we get Trump again, then I'll probably be really upset. Uh, but you know, but, but it's, it's people like you in the, in the Republican accountability project that are going <laughs> to keep that from happening. I'm, I'm hoping, right. Like is, is, is that, is that the, the, the work you guys are doing? <laughs> We're Good. certainly trying for sure. Good. Um, and I'm also, you know, eyes and ears open and encouraging, um, good people to run mm-hmm. for office. I think there's a need for that. Josh, any consideration? I think that may have come up in our last, you think I forgot, but I did tell you to consider running for office. No, I don't, you know, I, I haven't thought about it as much recently. Mm-hmm. I've been in a, kind of a weird place, but uh, mentally, but you know, now that I'm a little more clear minded, you know, and, you know, the presidency doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, I, I, selective I mean, hearing from Josh in our last podcast. I think. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, you know. So, so last, um, actually, one statement and then one one last question. So, is it is it Chloe O'Brien from Twenty Four? Oh, that's right. It was Chloe. Yeah. Okay, good. I I I had our research team, i.e., me, Google it. <laughs> As you're talking to, I was like, I feel like I know who she's talking about. But okay, <laughs> Chloe O'Brien. So so that's you. You're Chloe O'Brien. <laughs> wow, that's really neat. I like Twenty Four. So good on good on you. Uh, the 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 last question is inevitably there is going to be a if there's not already, I don't think there is, but there will be a, a Trump movie that that documents 
the presidency, maybe, you know, the January 6th, the attack on Qasem mm-hmm. Soleimani, whatever. Like, um, when this movie comes out or starts to be filmed, who would you want to play you in the movie? <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know that I would make the cut for the movie, but maybe, um, maybe, um, man, I don't know. That's a really tough question. Yeah. I mean, I maybe, no maybe Angelina Jolie. Any suggestions? <laughs> maybe it's the lady that played Chloe O'Brien. You can bring her back, you know, like she, she knows what you do, you know, that, that may not be a, a, a bad, a bad one. Cause I, I definitely think you would be in the movie. I mean, like you, <laughs> you, you seem to kind of rock the DC world when, when you decided to, uh, to, to leave the white house. So, um, it would be a bad, um, director move to not include your role, but that's just me, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the, they'll be, I'm sure the script will include conversations by some of these people that I've heard, uh, where we thought she would go away and she just won't go away. She's like the annoying. <laughs> she started this other like thing, the Republican accountability, like what? Like, why won't she just she's go working away? working with these people. I know. And she's like out recruiting moderate candidates, both on the left and the right. I mean, she's out of control. Moderates. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? What, I'm living really in the middle of here, guys. Anybody else want to join me? I know there's a lot of us there in the middle. <laughs> like, I I heard Bill Crystal was actually going to endorse Terry McAuliffe, which, I mean, like, so we're, we're in the thick of the Virginia Republican race because Josh and I are both in Virginia, you know? And so I was like, really? Bill Crystal's going to endorse Terry McAuliffe? Because at first I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'll take a look at this Glenn Youngkin and see what he's all about. You know, he didn't seem, he doesn't seem too Trumpy, although Trump endorsed him, but... You know, like mm. who else is he going to endorse? So I don't know. Who, 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 what do you think? Who who, who is He's the Republican accountability? Pro- yeah. Oh, he is pretty He's Trumpy. Pretty Trumpy, huh? Wow. He's pretty <laughs> Trumpy. Yeah. What, so. what an adjective, Trumpy. Did you ever think that would trumpy. be an adjective? <laughs> no. That no, we would use actually. Got it. No, I, so, it makes so, me like actually. It makes me cringe because people. I remember people, uh, high school friends, who were like. I keep waiting to see you on The Apprentice. And I'm like, well, you, I guess that kind of came true in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't realize that The Apprentice was coming to the White House. Yeah. Um, so there's that. You're fired. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Contrary so, so to who, belief, I, d- I was not fired. So I did keep my job yes, in The Apprentice. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you fired him. There you go. Bam. Yeah, yeah. There you go. You can't fire me. I quit. Um, yeah. So, so who, who would the Republican Accountability Project recommend I vote for for governor? Well, I don't think that we have actually endorsed officially for a candidate. So I don't know I could, if I could speak for rap. Mm-hmm. I personally uh, mm-hmm. will not be supporting Youngkin. Okay. <laughs> I think right. that anyone who has those tendencies is um, a warning uh, to me. And I, I'm concerned about the direction of that. I'm also concerned about, you know, I just, um, I prefer candidates to be truthful about where they stand on things. I don't need them going behind our back saying that I'm going to do this and then I'm going to pull a fast one over here and that's actually documented. Yeah. So I <laughs> I mean, that says a lot about your character and your integrity of the kind of person you are that you have to do that. And so that yeah. to me is a red flag. And I would, I would say that about a, a Democrat or a Republican, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's just something that in today's yeah. world really bothers me. So. so I have a very quick question. In my... <laughs> 20, let's see here, 20, what is it going to be? 2024 with that? No, no, no. For the president. Plus four. No, no, no. 2025 
gubernatorial candidacy? Will the uh, Republican um, uh, oh, what accountability uh, project? I'm sorry, project. Sorry, I'm forgetting <laughs> what you guys Let's endorse. Call it the rap. Rap. Will I endorse you? Yes. We can have a serious <sighs> conversation about that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I think we just made news just now. All right. Yes. Bertram 2025. Yeah, but but if you if you did endorse them, like it would be the rapture. Like you would have to add the the chur to the end because <laughs> you, uh, yes. you, you endorse. Anyways, yeah. we have to sit down dad. and have a serious conversation about where you stand on things, Josh. <laughs> All right, <laughs> you start to sound a little trumpy on this podcast. I'm gonna have to really tune in and start paying attention and be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the dark hilarious. side is taking you in. Walk away. We'll have a conversation. <laughs> That's so All right. funny. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Olivia, so much for uh, spending some time with us. We really appreciate you and just everything you do with rap and, and just, just being a good person. So just um, thank you for your time. Yes. Thanks thank for you. having me. Yeah. And uh, we'll see uh, you guys next week. All right. Bye-bye.